Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Okay, it says got it, but okay. All right. Hello and welcome to the Addicts Anonymous podcast. I'm your host, Jim R. Today is episode 93, and we're going to be interviewing Elaine D. How are you, Elaine? Oh, I'm fine. You're fine this morning? I, th- I thought you were fantastic. Well, I'm fantastic, too. All right, good. Glad to hear that. So let's dive in here. Tell me about your childhood and growing up. Oh, okay. That's probably where it's going to get the emotional part. Um, I grew up in Michigan in the uh, um, city of Wayne. I have six sisters and four brothers. Oh, wow. I have, um, when I was very young, I was sexually molested by a family friend, friend of the family. Um, I was probably about four or five years old. It went on for a couple years. And um, because I was so young and nobody ever discussed back in the early 60s sex, I didn't know um, that it was something that you weren't supposed to do. So as, uh, and the shame of it, got to me really bad because I couldn't really talk to anybody. I mean, my mom was there. My dad was there. I only have two parents, but all 11 of us have the same parents. We all, uh, my mother and father had 11 children. Um, So I didn't know really how to react to that. And then years later, probably when I got to be about eight or nine years old, um, I was molested again. Um, for a while and then that finally stopped and then at age 11 I had just turned 11 um, in um, 1969 my mom passed away Uh, she was 38 years old she died of congenital meningitis so that kind of left 11 children with my father I also have a younger sister who is mentally challenged so that put a little bit more of the burden on the family. Um, so needless to say, shortly after my mother passing, we ended up moving from our childhood home to another whole new neighborhood, didn't know nobody, didn't really have a lot of friends. Um, and I started smoking. And with having three older sisters, I started drinking at the age of 11 years old. I also started uh, experimenting with pot at that time. And that continued for most of my life. I am now 64 years old. Um, And um, eventually uh, I was gang raped at the age of 14 years old by, um, I was technically set up by a friend a person who I thought was a friend and he had me set up and I was gang raped by four or five different boys and when I got Why did home, he set, was there a reason that he set you up? 
besides his friends thought it was funny or they thought it was going to be hilarious. I mean, I never found out why, because I never seen the person again after that. So I never really figured out the why to his mania. Um, but when I came home and I tried to discuss this with my dad, he told me that I shouldn't have been there in the first place. So it was kind of my fault that it happened because I had no business leaving the house and going with a strange boy. So that kind of put the shame and the guilt on me even more. So then I started doing more drugs. Um, I started experimenting with about the age of 14 or 15 years old with acid, mescaline, mushrooms, alcohol. Um, but I continued to stay in school. I tried to help out as much as I could at home but it was really hard trying to take care of six younger brothers and sisters. I have three younger sisters and three younger brothers. And it was kind of hard for me because my oldest sister, she was the prom queen. She was the, the, uh, uh, the person with the high school letter. She was the, <laughs> the prom queen, that's all I can tell you. Um, and my second sister, I found out a couple years later, was being molested by my own grandfather. Um, and she didn't know how to deal with it. And then um, I have another sister, another older sister, and her, her, um, her results for uh, uh, anger was to beat up people. Where did you go? Um, hello, did you go? Sorry. Okay. Sorry about that. <laughs> And uh, her, her, her issue was anger issues. She had anger issues. Um, she told me years later that what would happen is when my, my father would beat us and he, he, would, he wouldn't spank us. He would get the nearest belt or whatever and beat us with it. I remember going to high school one time or junior high, I think it was, and going into swim class where I had the night before been beaten very severely and I refused to go to gym class. And um, finally the teacher came in and told me that I had to get changed and they'd seen all these bruises all over the back of my legs and stuff. And they were like, what happened? I said, oh, well, I had a motorcycle accident and I fell off the motorcycle. You know, that's teaching me years later to uh, already tell the lie about uh, domestic violence. I mean, domestic violence, sexual abuse, in my day and age really weren't talked about a lot. So, I mean, that's what, for me, that's what started my uh, path into true addiction. So did you have a lot of friends growing up? No. No? I had about two or three friends, people that I, actually a couple of them I still are actually still my friends. Um, but we kind of like went our own ways. I had friends when I was in my original uh, childhood home. I had friends that, you know, they were down the street. I had them since I was like two or three years old. But they never knew about any of this stuff. They didn't know about the sexual abuse. They didn't know about all of that. Get a, don't just snore my granddaughter here. Uh, 
<laughs> they didn't know about any of that stuff, you know, but we also used to get high together. So it was kind of like, you know, they weren't, I don't know. They didn't, I don't know. I can't really, I don't really want to say anything about them because, you know, they didn't, they had their own lives just as well as I had my own life. And when I was put into a new situation with nobody, see, when I was growing up, I had bright red hair. And as you can see, a lot of purpose. So when I, uh, uh, I would be made fun of a lot. I was picked on and bullied before people actually knew that that was a thing. I mean, kids did it, but nobody actually called it bullying or, you know, anything like that. And nobody ever really tried to stop it. I remember one very uh, traumatic time in, in junior high where, well, there was actually a couple of traumatic things in junior high where this kid used to pull my hair, I had long hair, and he used to pull my hair all the time. And then one day he said something about your mother's a whore. So I turned around and cold cocked him. I mean, I just turned around, double my fist up and smacked him dead in the face, you know. And then of course I got hysterical. And then they're like, what's the problem? I don't understand. I said, my mom is dead. You have no business talking to me or anybody else about anything you don't know shit about. Don't you ever fucking talk to me again. And I ran off into the bathroom. And then a couple people followed me into the bathroom. They're like, oh my God, we didn't know that. Well, how the hell would you know that? If you don't talk to a person, you don't, you don't have a communication with a person or anything like that. How do you know anything personal about the person? You know what I mean? I mean, if you're not hanging out with the person or talking to the person or communicating with the person. How do you know anything about them? You don't. You just assume shit. And assuming makes you an ass. <laughs> so what was it like as you got older and you graduated? Did you, well, I guess that's a question. Did you graduate high school? No, actually I dropped out of high school. What um, age? Uh, 11th grade because I became pregnant. I uh, quit school. I got married. Uh, I got married. And then uh, uh, we actually moved back into my father's home for the first year of my marriage. And then finally, my husband decided to get up off his lazy ass and stop. Uh, he didn't want to get a job. He didn't want to work. He didn't want to do anything like that. No normal, you know, adult things. He just sold weed and <laughs> we lived in my dad's house and my dad took care of all the bills and everything. And uh, about a year later, that was about a year we lived there. And then we finally moved out into an apartment in Detroit. Well, then he started cheating on me with the girl down the road. And then I found this out and then he left. And here I am, 19 years old, uh, just have a, have a one-year-old, have no, uh, have no um, skills as far as getting a job or anything like that. Um, my ambition in life as a child was to grow up and to be a mom and take care of my children, take care of my house, cook dinner, you know, that kind of mom, the Ozzie and Harriet mom that my mom was. 
you know. And um, so here I was, 19 years old, found out I was pregnant the day he left. So by the time I was 21, I had two children and was divorced. So um, I tried to figure out what I was going to do with myself and how to do it. <coughs> and then um, I kind of like got on welfare, I guess you would say. Not guess you would say I did get on welfare. And um, so I kind of lived that way. And then on the weekends. So I would... I'm, I'm actually a little ignorant towards that. How does welfare work? Is it just a set amount of money every week or how does it work? What's a month? Once yeah, a month. Once, and once was a it enough to pay the bills? Yeah, that's all it was, was enough to pay the bills. And so buy groceries. Did you have food on the table and stuff? Oh, yeah. I always made sure there was plenty of food on the table. I always made sure that there was a meat and a vegetable and a potato. My problem was I was used to cooking for 11, pe 12 people. So it was hard for me to downsize my cooking ability. So what I would do is I would buy the great big packages of meat and then I would cut them up in like, let's say there's 12 comes in the package. So I would cut them up in four packages and then put the rest in the freezer and then I would bring them out as I needed them. <coughs> but, and then I would make potatoes and then whatever was left over, I would put in the refrigerator and then we would have them the next day. The kids never were hungry. Their problem was they didn't have no ice cream, they didn't have no cupcakes, they didn't have no Twinkies, they didn't have the sweet treat shit, you know what I mean? Because we couldn't really afford that. But then uh, after a while, I ended up uh, moving in with my sister, my, one of my older sisters, and she had two boys, or she has a boy and a girl. And uh, we kind of lived there together for a while, and then... Um, I would be you were, still, you were still with your husband at this point or no? Oh, no. My husband left in, 1970, right. in 1977. Yeah, because you said he left. I guess he never ever. He left. Yeah, you never heard from him again. Well, actually, you're right. I never heard from him. I never heard a word. I never got a, 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 a Christmas. The kids never got a Christmas card. They never got a birthday card. They never got heard anything about him. And it was a shame because I wasn't stopping him from doing this. He stopped himself. He just didn't want anything to do with it. He just, you know, was involved with somebody else. And then at one point in time, his mom made him feel bad. So he came because I had got sick with uh, kidney disease or kidney problems. And I had to find somebody to help me with the two kids. So she offered to let me come stay with her, which was really a bad idea because she was an alcoholic. Her husband was an alcoholic. She was a barmaid and she always wanted me to come to the bar. So I would be at the bar. And of course, when you go to the bar, you drink. Most people don't go to the bar and just not drink. I mean. Yes. That was there for. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, no, I have gone to the bar and played pool and, you know, listened to music and shit and only had a drink, sit there and just kept on sitting there because my friends were there and they're like, whoa, come on, come on, I got to buy you a drink. I'm like, okay, well, here you go, buy the drink and I would leave it, sit there. And I mean, I still do this today. I mean, it's been about 
10 years since I've been in, well, it's been about six years since I've been in a bar. Last time I was in a bar, that was my sister's uh, uh, memorial service uh, for one of my older sisters who passed away uh, six years ago. But uh, yeah. And the thing is, is, is from the most part for like from 19, I would say 1978 to 1982, I just kind of like, I didn't, wasn't really doing any drugs. I stayed away from the drugs. Um, I had met a, a, a man in 19, I'd say it was 78, I think it was. And uh, him and his wife had come to my mother-in-law's because my father-in-law, who eventually later became my father-in-law, used to hang out at the bar that my mother-in-law worked at. So I knew him, I've known him since 1975, the father, we'll call him Red. Um, I knew Pops since 19, like I said, 75 when my oldest son was born. And um, so, he would come to the house and they would have these uh, parties at my mother-in-law's house of barbecue. And every person from the bar would be at the house. And they had plenty of liquor. I mean, and they were half of them people were half drunk and shit. And I met Lon um, at one of these barbecues. He had come to the house and he had this three-piece suit on. His wife was all dressed up really nice, had a brand new car. And I thought to myself, damn, you know, what the hell? The problem was, is there was a fight that had ensued and he pulled the gun on a man that was there at this party. And I was like, no, we can't have nobody get shot here. You all gotta stop this shit. And uh, so finally we got the argument under control and he sat down on the couch and he nodded out. Well, I didn't know what nodded out men at that time. Here I'm just 22 years old and you know, I'm not into the drug scene that much. And uh, so uh, he's sitting there and he's just nodding out. His wife's all nodded out. His finger's black with gangrene. I'm like, what the hell is that? And they said, oh, well, he's under the influence of heroin. And I was like, well, fuck that. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> 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 you know, I was like, hell with that shit. I don't ever want to try that shit ever again. I mean, if that's what it does for you, you know, you're just laying there fucking passed out. I mean, shit, what fun is that? That's, you know, I used to like the fun highs, not the, you know, sitting around and dragging out. Like, oh. Yeah. And uh, so anyways, um, uh, then he left. And I was like, wow, who the hell was that? And he's like, oh, that was my son. And I was like, oh, wow, damn. Anyways, it's just a, it's just a hint in as to how this story continues here. So for technically from like 1977 till 1980, I really didn't do a lot of drugs. I did uh, what I call binge drinking. Is on Saturday, I would go to the bar. I get a babysitter for the kids. I would go to the bar. And I would pray when I hit, had the first drink that I did not find myself in some strange place or in somebody's strange bed or some stranger in my bed because I would do what they call blackout drinking. I never had a drink. I would have 10 drinks. I was the same or, way. I blacked out every time. I was lucky. 
that most yeah. of the time I was home by myself blacking. Like, so I didn't, I didn't yeah, get I didn't too drink much trouble. All. Yeah, I only drank at home. Well, not only, what am I saying? I drank everywhere, but I wouldn't get too drunk out. Like if I went to a family well, member's house. I'll drunk someplace. Yeah, no, I, I would get just buzzed up enough, maybe a little drunk. And then when I went home, I just top it off. Like me and Jack, yeah. Jack Daniels or Jim Beam. Yep, Jack Daniels. good friends. Well, I'll tell you, funny other uh, uh, thing, and I guess this is kind of like what triggered me later on in life, but when I was 14 years old, I went with my sister and a bunch of her friends out to a lake, and they were drinking pretty heavily. Southern Comfort was the bottle of choice, oh, yeah. and there was like this much left in a half a gallon, and they're like, well, what are we going to do with this? We don't have any more Coke. So what I did at 14 fucking years old, stupid ass man, I just free poured the bottle down my throat. Oh my God. And I was totally wasted. I mean, totally, absolutely wasted. Uh, my best friend found me in my neighbor's yard, passed out. She thought I was dead. She ran next door. I mean, just like I said, it was a field next door. Uh, and I got my dad. And all my dad did was pick me up and lay me on the couch. Then when I woke up, he said, hey, I think you need to go take a bath because you smell. So needless to say, I probably had urinated on myself and whatever, whatever. And uh, so then when I got out of the bathtub, he starts telling me he's going to cook some eggs and some bacon. And I guess he was trying to see if I was going to get like nauseously sick. And I think if I would have, I probably would never have drank a lot anymore. But I didn't. I didn't get the hangover. I didn't get the headache. I didn't get all of that that stuff that goes with a hangover. So it's kind of like, well, this isn't as bad as people say it is. I don't know what they're talking about. So, I mean, it kind of like stuck with me years as years go on that, you know, even if I get totally drunk, I'm not going to wake up the next day with a headache. But instead, I would wake up with bruises on my legs or, or, you know, be stuff all over the house. And it looked like somebody had trashed the house. And it was probably me stumbling around trying to find my bed. And the good thing was, is I always had a babysitter for the kids. So I didn't have to worry about them, you know. But then in like, well, it kind of like went up and down. And then I met a a person who was dealing uh, pharmaceutical drugs. This is probably about the 70s, the late end of the 70s. And uh, he wanted to use me as a guinea pig. He said uh, his friend had something. He needed somebody to try out that uh, to find the, find the quality of it, if it was good quality. And so I this, said, was, this was drugs made by a manufacturer, like a like right. drug? Farms, okay. Yeah, farms. You know, do you know what kind? No. Um, I think he said it was like um, uh, qualudes or something Quaaludes. like that. Qualudes. But they were like, I guess they had uh, uh, tried to. Um, these people had tried to add additives to it. Okay. So they were adding other things to it. And they wanted to know what how what kind of a reaction person would have. 
And with me being clean from drugs, they figured that I was the perfect choice. And I was like, no, uh-uh. <laughs> that's not happening. And then he says, okay, well, never mind. You can try this. And I said, well, what the hell is that? He's like, oh, it's just a little bit of heroin here. I need you to try. I said, you know what? I got to go. And then I left because it flashed back to the uh, to uh, Red Sun Lawn and how he was. And I was like, I don't want anything to do with that, which was really, you know, kind of ironic that here 20 years later, or 15 years later, whatever it was, that here I'm going to start doing drugs again. So like in 1982, I met Lon again. He was living with my mother-in-law at the time. Yeah, it's so weirded out thing. Anyways. Lon, but, uh, Lon is your, was your husband yeah. at the time? Yeah, he was my uh, uh, friend Red's son. The one that I first had, uh, met who had done heroin. He was the one doing heroin. And then we started doing, we started dating and stuff, and we started doing Dilatas. I don't know if you know what those are. Dilatas? Yeah. painkiller? Yeah. Yeah, there's, that's a strong painkiller. Yeah, that's what I was addicted to for 10 years. That's really strong. Yeah. Um, and people are like, oh, so you were a heroin addict. I was like, no, I was a Dilata addict. And the thing was, is with them, I could actually, was a functioning what I call a functioning addict because I would go to work. I would meet people. I would talk to people and nobody knew that I was actually strung out on drugs. And it got to the point where every time I tried to kick it, then the, the, the withdrawals would get more than, than I could deal with. So I ended up becoming um, what I call straight sick. Because it's 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 when you're so sick that you're vomiting and you have diarrhea and you're throwing up and you have headaches and you have hot and cold sweats and all that stuff like that, where you get to the point where you're like, look, you got two choices. You either do some more drugs and you feel better or you continue to feel like this for the next week. And the problem was is then I started prostituting on the streets. So... Uh, and of course, came jail. And while this was going on, and I would end up going to jail, my kids, my children, were being watched by very bad people. How did you get into prostitution? Because you said that you were someone that was always working and functioning. Right. So what, what well, did you lose your job? Yeah, I lost the job because of not showing up for work. Because, like, I would not... I would oversleep or my car wasn't working or the kids were sick or for whatever reason, I ended up losing the job. So then a friend of mine was like, hey, I know where you can make some good, quick, easy money. Now, I don't know where you're from or where you're at, but there's a section of Detroit. It was it is still called the Cass Corridor, and that was the red light district in downtown Detroit from the early 50s on to the 90s, I think. Uh, I think most people stopped being down there in the 90s because it got crazy. But uh, then I started going to jail for the prostitution. And um, then my children, my oldest two children, were uh, with babysitters that weren't um, 
of the best quality, I would say. Uh, my daughter ended up getting molested by one of these kids because he was only 16 years old. And uh, my, what I'm just going to call him my husband, we're just going to have to deal with that one, um, at the time was with some very, um, hung out with some very derelict uh, company. They were bikers, or ex-bikers, I should say, because they really they weren't bikers anymore, but they were still had that mentality of a biker. They still had the mentality that uh, the one young man who molested my daughter and uh, told me about it, and my husband heard it, uh, they, well, I guess after all these years, I'm kind of clear with this because I didn't do it. Uh, they sexually, um, they, I don't know what they did. I wasn't there when it happened, but I know he had 127 stitches put in his skull and um, he was in a coma for a while. And um, so my daughter heard this and seen kind of what was going on. And um, so when the next young man, about six months to a year later, um, touched her, she told me this time, she says, Mom, this time, please do not let Dad touch him or his friends, please. So Whatever this guy, you. after all what happened, did it again? Um, his brother. Oh, his brother. Yeah, but his brother knew. His brother was there when his brother was getting beat up and everything. Yeah, so his his brother so, should have been well so, aware. I mean, like, why the fuck would you do that? You're crazy. You That's crazy. Happened. And on top of that, why the fuck would you do that, period? This is a little girl that's, you know, you, you've known her for a couple of years now. This is not somebody who just, I don't know. I just never understood that. So uh, what we did was we had him arrested. I had him arrested. And the cops didn't do anything. The cops were like, well, you know, I mean, he's just a kid and she's a kid. And how do we know, you know, what happened happened? And this is back in the early eighties, and it's like bullshit. This is this is this is why I am the way I am, you know, because nobody believed me when I was a little kid in the sixties, because nobody talked about sexual abuse, nobody talked about domestic violence, nobody talked about none of the shit that we do now today, which is a blessing because now more people are being saved from what's going on in the world than what was going on as we were children. And the bad thing is, is now all these people here 20 years later are thinking about, oh, damn, that's what happened to me. Now I know why I'm so screwed up. You know, I mean, people blame it on drugs, and it's not always drugs. But uh, anyways, so uh, the cops didn't do anything. They didn't do anything to them. Um, eventually, the uh, uh, I ended up going to jail for 90 days and 85, and... Um, my children called these people uncle. Um, what did you, um, you go to jail for? You said you went to jail. What did you go to jail for? Prostitution. Prostitution. How long yeah. did you go in jail for? Well, um, the first time was 30 days. The next time was 60 days. And it was like another time there was, it was 90 days. <laughs> and, uh, the last time, well, it's kind of one of the, well, it wasn't the last time I got arrested, but it was one of the worst times, um, was July, end of July in 1985. Um, there's a little thing that goes with this before this, but, um, the friends my, my husband hung out with, 
um, his name was John Carl Fry. And um, he was into, he was also a pimp. Um, he was into drugs and um, all kinds of other things. And uh, he had committed a murder. He killed a, a psychiatrist called, Do his name was Dr. Alan Canty. There's a book about it and all that great stuff now. But uh, um, so when he went to jail, when he was finally caught and went to jail, um, they were looking at us because we had known him and people had said that we were his, their friends. So then uh, the cops started paying real close attention to me. Um, during that time, um, every time I walked out of the house, I was arrested. I didn't have to be doing anything. I was just walking down the street and I would be arrested. I would be arrested and then get out of jail four hours later and then be rearrested. I couldn't attend my father's funeral because I was on my way to jail instead of attending my father's funeral while I was driving down the street. Um, I was totally harassed by the Detroit, Fire, the, the Detroit Police Department um, for a good six months. For four of those months, I was spent more time in jail than I spent on the streets or at home. So that kind of led to me being arrested and doing 120 days in jail. So my oldest two children who were with my husband at the time, he couldn't take care of them because he was a drug addict, plain and simple. I mean, we all had that same problem. So they ended up going to live with my brother who eventually contacted their biological father and then he took them. So when I got out of jail, I couldn't find my children. I didn't know where they were. Um, I got a, a message from somebody that my ex-husband had them. I had no way of contacting my ex-husband. So that kind of put all the shame and the guilt and all of that, well, excuse me, on me. And it led to my total downward spiral of addiction. I started doing so many drugs. My habit had went from, at that time we could buy a pill for $15. Well, my habit got so bad at that time in 1985, from 1985 to 90, or, well, not really, but uh, to the point where I was spending four or $500 a day, every day, without a, without a second thought about it. I was just wasted all the fucking time. I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know where I was going. I just totally lost it because my children, though through even through my addiction, were my life. And I failed. I failed being a mother. I failed being a protector. <coughs> I failed them completely. And the things that they went through because of my addiction will never be forgotten. They have been forgiven, but they will never be forgotten. What kind of things did you do in front of the children? I did drugs. I had sex acts. Um, they were in the car while I was prostituting. Um, 
One time I went downtown at three o'clock in the morning to buy drugs. My daughter was with me in the car, she was eight years old. And I went upstairs to this apartment where I was supposed to buy drugs. This guy beat me within an inch of my life to rob me. And I came downstairs and my daughter see my face just bloody and broken and, and all of that stuff. And uh, when I went home, my husband was like, well, do you got the drugs? Cause that's all like, he didn't care that my, I was beaten severely. Uh, one time we were, um, I had to either take the kids with me when I went and bought the drugs or I had to take the kids with me when I prostituted at some time, excuse me, Valerie, Valerie. Oh, my granddaughter. Um, <laughs> um, so, I mean, it got really, really bad. Is there any way of lowering that a little bit? Huh? Is there any way of her lowering that just a little bit? Yeah, I'm trying to get, her to get out of here with it. Me, Valerie. Valerie! You <laughs> Sorry. That's right. Okay. But uh yeah, they seen some and and the bad thing is is like if I was out working or something, then he would turn around and, and pull my kids out of school. I didn't know that. And uh beat them and you know, my oldest son says he had more televisions thrown at him than he knows about. And this was all prior to uh, me losing them in 1985. So they went through a lot of different psychological and physical, emotional uh, distress due to my drug addiction. Now, I haven't I've talked to my oldest daughter in 2007. She called me because she found out that I had her phone number and her address. I never used it. I had had it from probably 2003 or four when I did a people search on the internet and I'd never used it because I didn't know what to say. I mean, I didn't know how to say anything or what there was to say. So she contacted me and she told me all of these things. And she's like, you know, as far as I'm concerned, you're dead. I'll never forgive you for the things that have happened to me in my life. And I'm like, okay, I can understand that. I mean, now today being clean and sober and being clean and sober when I talk to her, I understand that. I understand the hatred, the, the anger, the animosity, the whole nine yards, I understand that. Now, since they were born, or since they left in 85, um, I ended up uh, having four more children since then. Um, I have a son that was born in 87, and the reason um, my husband at the time, he didn't really want to have kids. I had had an abortion under his duress. And um, 
I said I couldn't do that ever again in my life. That was terrible. That was the worst thing I ever did in my life. Or pretty close to one of the worst things I ever did in my life. And um, so he had, um, I went to jail. And he was trying to figure out how to get the money up for my bond. What did you go to jail for? Hmm? What did you go to jail for? Prostitution again? Oh, yeah. It's, it's, see, they call it what, well, technically, it wasn't prostitution. It was disorderly conduct, which is technically a misdemeanor in most states. Well, when you get three or four or five or six or seven of them charges all within a matter of period of time, then the judge is like, oh, well, you got to go to jail for this. You can't just keep doing this now. you got to go to jail. So then they would sentence me to like 30 days on five cases. Or now they've changed the law now in Michigan, whereas if you get two or three disorderly conducts and it turns into not a uh, traffic offense, it becomes a misdemeanor. And then they could send you up to give you a $500 fine or up to 30 days in jail, whichever you would prefer. I mean, it's, you don't really have a preference, but I mean, if you don't have the money, you go to jail. To this day, 2022, I still owe the state of Michigan $575 in charges. And I haven't done anything in Michigan since 1991, I guess. So, yeah. And the judge one time, he was like, I'd like to just, I said, hey, I'd like you to just put me in jail for 30 days and we could get rid of this shit, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, he was like, no, I can't do that. This is a misdemeanor and it doesn't call for jail time. And yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like, hey, it's okay, dude. That's, you know, fine. (laughs) But um, now uh, my third son was born in Nashville, Tennessee. I went down there, my sister older sister <laughs> lives outside in Nashville at the time. And uh, my husband and I got arrested for breaking and entering and uh, uh, armed robbery. And stupid ass once he got this, he stole a, a complete safe out of the hotel. I mean, the whole safe, whole nine yards. And um, we finally got the money out of it. He took it to the police station to pay my bond. Well, what the hell? You go, you know, come go to the police station if you'd wanted. You just committed a friggin' class A felony, you know, but he did anyways. So he was arrested and sentenced to uh, three years, I think, in jail in Jackson prison here in Michigan. Wait, so what happened? He committed a crime and then came to bail you out? Yeah. See, that's some drug thinking there, dude. (laughs) Yeah. That's some real serious drug thinking there. You know, you only do that shit if you're on drugs. Yeah, I mean, person in their normal mind would not go themselves to the police station to post bond. They would send somebody else. So what ended up happening was they gave him uh, early release on the three years and they put him on uh, in a halfway house and he escaped the halfway house and we left and went down to um, 
Tennessee. So everything was going pretty good there for a while. I had the baby and we were, I was straight and clean and stuff. And then he started doing cocaine, which neither one of us knew a hell of a lot about at that time. So then I started smoking coke, mainlining coke, you know, running it up, shooting it with heroin. And uh, so we ended up leaving uh, Kentucky because my son had a food allergy to the water. He was, you know, he wasn't thriving. He was throwing up and the doctor said, you're either going to have to get him bottled water or you're going to have to take him somewhere else where they clean the filters, the water filter, where the water is filtered more than it is in Tennessee. So we ended up coming back to Michigan because he wanted to turn himself in. He didn't want to be on the run. He wanted to be with his son. He wanted to be there when his son was growing up. And uh, so I ended up getting pregnant again. And um, so um, we were back in Michigan and um, I went into labor um, two days after my birthday. And I took his truck and um, I took myself to the hospital because he was too stoned and too fucked up to give a shit. And um, so I so went in. So you drove yourself to the hospital? In labor. In, yeah. Wow. And um, so uh, he came to the hospital. I was there. And he's like screaming and hollering, where's my keys? Where's my truck? How dare you take my truck? Yada, yada, yada. So I gave him the keys and he left. Well, on his way home with my son at the time, he was two years old, he was arrested. First, he tried to do a high-speed chase thing. And then he decided that he had my son in his car. So he pulled over. So then um, I had the baby and my... I got a phone call from my mother-in-law saying that she had my son and that she was taking him to her house. And my husband had given her legal permission, legal guardian over my son. And I was like, well, that doesn't matter because I'm his mom and they'll still let me have him. She says, no, they won't because you're a drug addict and a prostitute. So you're not getting him. So, uh, and she says, if you want, you can come back to my house. But I know you have warrants for my, your arrest. I know you're going to end up going back to jail. And you cannot bring that baby here. Did you even, so when she said that to you, did anything click in your head? Or did you just want your child back? You didn't care what happened? Well, I did care what happened. The thing was, is I did care what happened. and um, And that's kind of what, set me on the road to my next decision, my next major decision in my life, one that I've kind of regretted. I don't know. Um, it's a double-edged sword. But the, the baby I was in labor with um, was a boy. And it was the dead of winter in Michigan. And there was already like six inches of snow on the ground. And I didn't have anywhere to go. So I did what I thought <coughs> was best. And I 
brought a nurse in, had a nurse come in, and I said, I'd like to place my son for adoption. And she asked me if I was sure. And I said, well, I have no income. I have no place to live. It's the dead of winter in Michigan. I mean, it's the dead of winter outside. It was like, I don't know, 20 or 30 degrees outside. And um, I was like, yes, this is the best choice that I can make for my child. So, um, because I have C-section, um, they always take the baby and put the baby in one room and you're in another room because you're trying to heal. Um, but a couple hours later after I had the baby, most times when you have a baby and you place it up for adoption, they don't let you see the baby. Um, but I guess the nurse didn't know. First, she brought me pictures of my son. <coughs> and then she invited me upstairs to hold him. She said he was a little fussy because um, he had just got his blood taken and asked me if I'd like to go upstairs and hold him. <coughs> well, that was one of the hardest things I've ever done. Uh, <coughs> was to go upstairs to hold my son, knowing that I'd never be able to do that again after that day. And then as soon as actually I sat there for probably about a half hour rocking him in a chair, he fell asleep. And the nurse come over and she's like, oh my God, I am so sorry. I did not know you plan on giving him up for adoption. And I was like, that's okay. This is something I'll cherish for the rest of my life. And um, so. So it's something, obviously, you, something you did cherish because you seem a little yeah. emotional right now about it. Pretty emotional. <coughs> um, so my um, drug addict thinking and not knowing any better and uh, whatever. Whatever excuse I want to give myself right now. Um, I ended up going back to doing drugs. Um, I didn't go to my mother-in-law's. I uh, kind of just wandered the streets for a while. I um, You were homeless? Yeah, I was homeless. Where um, you sleep? Where, where would you sleep? In the bushes, in the woods. Outside the doorsteps, um, I met a person who said, hey, I know somebody will let you stay at their house, you know, give them $50 a week, whatever, and, uh, you know, they'll give you a room. So I said, okay, yeah, that sounds like a good idea, beat sleeping on the street. <coughs> well, what I didn't know is the person was dealing cocaine, and I don't mean powder cocaine, I mean crack cocaine, powder cocaine. So my stupid mentality was I was still trying to kick my uh, Delada habit. And I used the cocaine to kick the Delada habit. Which in reality, after all these years, I realized that I probably would have been better off just doing the Deladas, but not me. Um, I started a cocaine habit. Back then, we were freebasing it. 
which is a lot worse than what I do nowadays. And the cocaine was a lot more powerful than it is nowadays. I mean, I would go out and uh, prostitute myself and get two or three hundred dollars and buy me an eighth and within a couple hours it would be gone and I'd go back in the same vicious circle. I don't know. The only thing that really saved me was that I did have a house to actually go to and a bed and a shower. And I that must have been scary. Yeah, it wasn't as scary as the reason that I finally quit forever. Um, that went on for a while. And then... Um, I, I mean, just sleep, sleeping outside at night. Yeah. Even, even prostituting yourself because you're putting yourself in a yeah, I was in a dangerous there. position because that person could attack you or do some. You know what I mean? It's just I've been there. That had that happen. You've had it happen. See, it's a dangerous place to yeah, be. Yeah, I had a. Um, um, I always wanted to thank these four boys. I'll tell you when that happened. Um, one time I was uh, on a street corner. I remember this very vividly. It's just like it was the other day, um, and. Uh, this guy pulled up in a station wagon and I walked over to him and I looked in his car and he had a gun pointed at me and he said, get in the car. So I did. <laughs> and um, we drove and drove and drove to a park, um, very famous park in Michigan. It's called Heinz Drive. And um, he uh, put the gun to my head and told me that I needed to give him oral sex. And I was like, okay, this is the last thing I'm going to do in my life. Um, shit. So I did it very well. Um, he yanked the back of my hair. And he yelled at me and he started screaming at me. And he's like, are you trying to kill me or what, you stupid bitch? What the hell are you doing? And I'm like, I'm doing what you told me to do. You got a gun pointed in my head. What the hell do you expect me to do? Except not do what you freaking want me to do. He's like, oh my God, you need to stop. So when he started yelling at me and screaming at me, I started yelling back. I didn't know what else to do. I was freaked out. I mean, I'm paranoid. I'm scared to death. This is the last thing I'm going to do in my life. This man has a gun. He's going to kill me. <coughs> so we started arguing, screaming and hollering. And while we're arguing, I'm sliding closer to the door. You know, I finally get hold of the doorknob. The door actually opens this time. And I run out. I start running. And he starts shooting at me. And these four little kids come down because it's a, a ravine-like park. And these kids come running down the side of the hill. And they, they're they like screaming and, and I'm screaming. And the guns, you can hear the gunshots hitting the trees and shit and the trees splintering and shit. They're like, oh my God, there's a gun. He's shooting at that lady. They run up there and they call the sheriff's office, the Wayne County Sheriff's Office. And the cops come, and of course, they don't want to really talk to me because I'm a prostitute, and it was probably a, a, a drug deal gone bad, or or I provoked it, or anything like that. You know, they're telling me all this shit, and I'm like, look, I don't care. Whatever. I'm safe now. The guy's gone. You know, the kid's giving them the license plate number and a description of the guy, description of the car. Later on, I found out uh, one other time when I was arrested for somebody else that got killed that I know, and um, their friend had said something about, well, Lane might know what happened. 
uh, because her and I got into an argument. And when I got to the homicide division of the police station, they were like, um, hey, no, she didn't do it because we know she didn't do it because she helped us solve the murder of 10 women. This guy that had picked me up and pulled the gun on me, eventually, I guess they later on found out that his, the same gun that he had attempted to kill me with was tied to four other murders of prostitutes in the Wayne County area. So you got that's real lucky. Yeah, I am. <laughs> that's, I mean, I'm more lucky than I have the women out there right now. So tell me more about your drug use. You said it was mainly crack cocaine? No, Marilyn. And then um, after it stopped being crack, then, well, actually it stopped being cocaine. And then it became heroin. And then I started doing heroin. And and I did that for quite a few years. I mean, there was, we were living on the streets, doing heroin. There was no, um, there's no home anymore. Um, once my kids were taken, there was no home base. I ended up having, uh, getting pregnant again um, with my daughter, my youngest daughter. It, each time you get pregnant, is it different men? No. Same man? Yeah, same guy. Okay. No, I'm not one of, I don't know. <laughs> Doesn't work that way with me. Um, thank God, too, because that'd be crazy. <laughs> well, I have friends that have that problem where they have three or four different baby daddies. And I'm like, and um, since then, he has passed anyway, so I can talk trash. um but uh anyways i ended up having four children with him um three boys and a girl now um after i gave up timmy that's the one i gave up for adoption his name was timothy um i had a girl in 91 and then i had a boy in 93 um 91 we were kind of like um pretty well um his mom had given him a house so he could keep my the, the oldest son of ours um and had a you know she kept him from the time when I uh gave up the other son in 88 uh for adoption and she still kept my other son and kind of refused to let me see him she would let me see him for about half an hour if I was lucky, while my husband was in prison. And um, when he got out of prison, um, she just packed all of her stuff up and moved because she knew that she wasn't, she enabled him a lot to do drugs while I was gone. And um, whatever he wanted, she gave it to him. It was just, you know, it didn't matter. She knew what he was doing with it and she didn't care. She just, you know, didn't want to hear him bitch at her or whatever, for whatever reason. <coughs> so in um, 92, um, we were doing so much drugs, so much crack cocaine. There are gaps in that time period that I can't even, um, I can't even tell you about because I don't know. I don't remember 
um, and they weren't like traumatic things or something like that. It was just due to the drug use and all of that stuff that I don't know. I just no longer, um, I don't know. It was like, it was like fog and I wasn't really there. I was just physically there, but not mentally or psychologically there. And due to the drug addiction and the drugs I was doing and the amount of drugs I was doing, it was just really bad, really, really bad. <laughs> and then um, we started living on the streets. I mean, straight up on the streets. Um, uh, during this time, we would sleep in uh, fields and camping and sleeping bags um, and cars. Slept under a church one time. Um, the freeway Vidocs, which is definitely not very good for you. Um, I have arthritis in both hips now from sleeping on the ground. And a doctor asked me one time, he was like, Well, why is it like all bony and chippy in your hips in that area? And I was like, It's probably from sleeping on the ground for years, years of being homeless and working the streets. Not so much the streets anymore. I stopped doing that after 91. And then we would do what they call signing. You know, people on the corner just holding a sign saying, help me, feed me. <laughs> yeah. So that's what we were doing. And the bad thing was, is the really thing I feel really bad. Another thing I feel bad about is I would have my son with me. And my husband would be sitting at home doing drugs or sitting in an apartment or sitting wherever doing drugs. And me and my son were out on the street corner. And then uh, in 1993, while I was pregnant with my youngest son, um, I was caught hitchhiking on uh, the Lodge Freeway with my son. And they took him away from me. They took him and they arrested me and uh, for child endangerment and put me in jail and uh, put my son in um, uh, childcare um, for the, the state childcare or whatever. Foster care. Yeah. Well, they first put him in courthouse and then they put him in foster care. And um, he stayed there for quite a while. And then I was, um, when I gave birth to my youngest son, they took him immediately because he tested positive for cocaine. And um, so you were doing drugs while pregnant. Yeah. Yeah, because I mean, like I said before, it's kind of like a, a cut edge thing. Um, every time I didn't, every time I would try to get help, they were like, hey, look, you got to do this, 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 that, you know, whatever. You can't get a job. I had a job for a while until they found out I was homeless. Once they found out I was homeless, they were, I was fired, which is a bunch of bullshit because, you know, they're like, no, you have to have a permanent address. You have to have some place to get your mail. And, you know, so what's that got to do with it? You're handing me a check in my damn hand. What's that got to do with where I live? You know, but they didn't want to hear that. And um, so in 93, they um, took my youngest son too. So they had, at this time, they had my uh, oldest son, my youngest son, 
my daughter. And um, that's the way it was. <coughs> but the drug addiction just started getting worse and worse and worse. And it just, I mean, it, it numbed the pain. It covered the hurt. It uh, covered the shame. So I thought anyway. Um, but uh, it took a lot. I mean, and during all of this time, there's also physical abuse, uh, domestic abuse, uh, alcoholism, drug addiction, uh, a lot of heroin. Uh, anyway, it's going to have to wait till Mila goes through the room here. Um, <laughs> sorry, my granddaughter, my other granddaughter, I have four granddaughters. That's okay. My daughter has forgiven me, and uh, now that we all live together. Uh, but anyways, so what do you like to know? So, what is life like now? Well, let me ask you this: When did you finally say, "I have a problem, I have an issue, and I need to get help"? Okay. When did you when did you get sober and when did you turn up your life around, stop prostituting yourself and things like that? Okay, that's kind of a, a, a triple layer thing here. <laughs> okay. Peel away the layers for us. Okay. So in 1996, I did a documentary called um, uh, Borderline Story of Eight Mile Road uh, with my husband and I in there because we lived on the streets so um that kind of woke me up to like what the hell was I still doing and why am I here and all of that stuff like that but it took until shortly after that uh 1998 the end of 98 January of uh 99 we had moved from Michigan to Florida to Tampa Florida where my in-laws were living. My mother-in-law, you know, had my son for the longest time. And uh, my father-in-law, who I'd known since 1975, uh, he was diagnosed with melanoma cancer. And my husband and his father were very, very close. I mean, they were, they ate with each other. They had sex with the same women. You know, that kind of a party father and son um, relationship. Um, so anyway, so he was scared. He's worried that he was going to lose his dad and he wanted to be there. So we uh, packed what little things we had left. Some lady from the street uh, uh, passed by on the street. He used to give a, help us out and with money all the time. Bought us plate, uh, bus tickets. She bought us a set of one-way bus tickets to Tampa, Florida, which was fantastic at the time. So we went down to Florida where I um, got a job, and I really wasn't doing a lot of drugs. I was still doing some crack cocaine at the time, um, but not heavily. Um, my husband's leg got infected with gangrene. They ended up amputating it. Uh, three, four, five times. 
um, in 2000. What do, you, what do you mean they ended up amputating it five times? Well, they cut part from the ankle to the calf, and then they cut from the calf to the mid-calf, and then from the mid-calf to the kneecap, and then past the kneecap because the leg was just so infected and uh, gangrene, I mean, staph, uh, yeah, staph had set into the bone. So they were trying to get it to the point where the staff wasn't into that piece of the bone, where it was good bone. You understand? Yeah. Okay. So um, this was, by this time it was 2000, January 2000. Um, the ironic thing about this is his mother had a fortune teller tell her her fortune and she told him that my husband would not make it past 46 years old. Well, he did by two weeks. Um, he turned 46, um, January 12, 2000, and he died January 27, 2000. So um, he died in the house. I was there. Um, his father was in the bedroom. Um, I heard a crash. I ran into the living room and he was lying, taking his breath, last breath, laying on the floor in the living room. Of course, I called the EMS. They came. Uh, they brought the Narcan. He didn't OD. He didn't have enough drugs in his system to OD. Um, he had just gotten out of the hospital. <coughs> and um, so technically he wasn't. I mean, even in the autopsy, they don't know why he died. They just died. And I was like, probably because for the last year, he's been praying to die. God answered his prayers. You know. Um, so after that happened, I was alone, all by myself for the first time in my entire life. I didn't have anybody. I had a crazy mother-in-law, a father, a perverted father-in-law. But as far as I was concerned, I didn't have anybody. Um, so um, before he passed, I got arrested. I was did a drug deal for somebody and um, I was arrested for it, for possession of cocaine. And um, I was on probation for it. And then when my husband died, I went off the deep end. I did a lot of drugs within three or four days. I don't know where I got the money. I don't know where I got the drugs. I just know I did a lot of drugs. 48 hours. And I was arrested and put in jail. And the judge gave me a, um, I thanked the judge every day. But he gave me a choice between going to prison for the next five years, go to drug rehab. So I chose drug rehab, smart people do that. Um, and um, it was a six month inpatient, six month outpatient. <coughs> well, it started working out really good. I mean, I was doing really good inside and um, they have a part of a program once you get to a certain level you know, the last two months, you get to get a job, you get, to get out, be out in the world, see people, talk to people, you know, do normal things. 
And um, so that worked out pretty good. And then the job was going to continue after I got released from uh, the inpatient. Well, once I got released from the inpatient, I don't think I was psychologically or mentally uh, ready to quit doing drugs. Because within three days of me being out, I started doing drugs again. I started smoking cocaine. I started, you know, smoking crack and shit. And uh, not a lot, but just enough to fuck up my sobriety, you know? And then um, <coughs> uh, eventually I pissed dirty for my EO and she was like, guess what? I go back to rehab and I'm like, yeah, I think I need to go back to rehab because a lot of it was where I was living. I was living in the same house that my husband had died. Now, I don't know how you feel about uh, uh, premonitions or spirit world or anything like that, but there were times when I was in that house by myself and I could see my late husband laying on the floor breathing his last breath. <clears throat> and um, in order to escape that, I used drugs or alcohol, which is what I've done for all these years. So, um, of course, I ended up going back to rehab. I finally completed rehab three years later. It's a 12, uh, six-month program, but it took me three years to complete the process of actually getting out, graduating, not having a dirty urine. The problem was when I got out, I didn't have a place to live. So I started living back on the streets. Bad idea. You live on the streets, you start hanging out with people on the streets, and people on the streets usually are doing drugs, one for shame, one way or another. So um, <coughs> I ended up... Uh, starting to do drugs again. Um, in um, 2006, I finally graduated. I, mean, that is, I finally graduated from uh, drug rehab in 2003. So for three years, I kind of like wandered the streets, not really having anything permanent called mine or anything else. I was just trying to make it day by day. And some of the things they taught me in rehab, I would use, so I wouldn't use so much. And then um, I got really sick and I had to go to the hospital. And while I was in the hospital, um, it's ironic because it was uh, one of those teaching hospitals where you have the interns and you have the real doctor and then you have the interns and stuff. And one of the interns had said something about uh, know she's got heart problems she should you know she's got serious heart problems and uh, the um, head doctor said she's got other problems too she needs to take care of them because it, it doesn't matter what we're going to do for her I mean hell she's probably going to be dead and within the next year if she keeps doing what she's doing and living the way she's living and I was like it just dawned on me that's when it set in that you know I couldn't keep doing this I couldn't keep living on the streets. I was too old to be sleeping in front of the, um, the uh, uh, temporary staff agency where I would be working. I would get a job and uh, the temp service and I, 
were nights when I didn't get off work till like three o'clock in the morning. So I would sleep in front of the place. And, you know, I mean, doesn't matter where you're at. Sleeping in streets in front of buildings and all that stuff, it's not a good thing. It's especially not a good thing for a woman by herself. You know, it was one thing when I was doing it with my husband there, but it was a whole other thing when I was doing it with just me being there. So I figured I needed to get more serious help and put more effort into staying clean than I was. So I got with a friend and she had me stay at her place and I got a job and I started working and staying away from people with the drugs and stop having friends and hang on a second. Hey Mila, can you take that over there, please? I'll let you give you permission to eat the watermelon in there. Thank you. Anyways, could you hear me? Yes, I could. Okay. Keep going. But that's what kind of did it for me was just, you know, um, being old and sleeping on the streets and scared. I mean, I got scared as I got older, I think. And then I just started thinking of the shame and the guilt and how, you know, um, I started seeing a, a psychiatrist technically and she was like, all oh, my uh, sexual abuse as a child wasn't my fault. So I always felt, felt, felt it was, I mean, you know. Did you said wrong. you felt it was your fault, you said, when you were younger? Yeah. Oh yeah. So that's what, that's the problem is when, when, things like that happen, you have a tendency, a woman has a tendency, even a man, man, though they don't usually talk about men being raped, um, have a tendency to believe that it's their fault. You know, it's your fault. You did something. You you, you dressed in, inappropriate. Um, you, you know, wanted your body. You did something to, 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 to get this to happen to you. It didn't just happen. It doesn't just happen. Like uh, my uh, younger, my the daughter I live with now um, was sexually molested too by her uncle. And when it was brought up, um, his mother said there was no way that that could have happened. He would have never done anything like that. You must be lying. You just want to get out of his house. You don't want to be there. You're just lying. You know, and it just triggered so many thoughts back to me and as me as a child and hearing the same kind of things about, you know, you can't say that about people that that wouldn't happen, that person wouldn't do this. But uh, so all of that, that and uh, um, deciding that I had enough, I just couldn't take anymore and I needed to be free. I needed to get a job and I needed to work and I needed to focus on me more than anything else because here I was already 50 years old or almost 40 something, 45 years old. It was time for me to, you know, uh, be who I was meant to be instead of who I was, portraying to be, trying to be. And the more I worked at it, the better I got at it. I mean, today here, I just retired in 2019. 
Um, I worked for a ham company from 2007 until 2019. <coughs> and actually that was my saving grace. That's what actually saved my life was a job. I know people will think that's kind of funny or kind of strange. How can a job save your life? But I was in Florida and I was getting towards 2006 and um, I ended up living, going back backwards and staying with some people that I should have never been staying with. And um, I started doing drugs again. I started smoking cocaine on the weekends or um, there was a lot of narcissists going on in the house and a lot of um, the person wanted to dominate me and, and knew my past and wanted to use that um, to their advantage. You know, they were like, hey, you were so good at this. Well, then why don't you take care of this guy here for me? This is my friend and I can get a, a good bonus and a, a promotion with this if you do this or you do that, whatever, whatever. And um, so I started uh, what I call chipping and dipping <coughs> with drugs again. And I was like, no, this isn't what I want to do. What is, you have to explain, what is chipping and dipping? That means when you just like buy $20 worth of dope and you do it on Saturday and you Monday through Friday, you don't do anything. So just so on still, the weekends, basically. Right, yeah, but you're still doing drugs. You're you're not clean. I mean, I have a friend, no, no, I get it. You know, you're not clean because if you're okay, you're clean for three or four days, and then you technically what people say in the AA or NA thing is you relapse for two days and then you start all over again. So you're not really clean. You're just dipping and dipping. You know, you're just dipping a little here and a little there. It's like you know, taking a shot every three days or something, you know, you're not yeah. really drunk or you're not really heavy drinking, but you're still drinking. Yeah, I mean, I've learned that over the years. It's like, I've talked to people since I've been in recovery and they're like, I'm clean, I'm sober, I'm taking Suboxone. And I'm like, then you're not clean. If you're taking Suboxone, you're taking meth uh, uh, methadone, you're taking any of this other stuff, you're not clean because the suboxone is just as addictive as fucking heroin is. You've got to go to the doctor. You've got to pay a doctor. If not, you've got to go to the pill clinic and you're getting it that way. So it's the same thing. You're not in a true state of reality if you're freaking still taking medication. Now, it's one thing if you're taking psychotropic medication because you're schizophrenic or you're bipolar, or you're, you know, paranoid schizophrenia, or something like that. That's one thing. But if you're taking Suboxone, so you don't use again, there's something wrong with that. That's just my opinion, though. Yeah, no, that's about is a deterrent, because at least the people you can say that they're not committing crimes anymore, most of them, and they're not using needles and things like that. That's, it's harm reduction. Everyone has a different view on it. Right. Well, I mean, I could say the same thing if I smoke is okay and I'm not using a needle anymore. I'm not getting abscesses. I'm not uh, uh, endangering anybody else anymore, except for mm -hmm. myself. You know, I mean, they all have a, a different script to it. My friend who's doing some boxing, he told me 
that his doctor won't lower his dose because she's scared that he's going to go back to doing cocaine. And I said, when was the last time you did some cocaine? He said, four years ago. Now, see, four years is something different than just two weeks ago or six months ago or something like that. If you used two years ago or three years ago, then you shouldn't be still on that kind of medication. Not if you're trying to withdraw from whatever drug it is you're withdrawing from. Mm-hmm. Like I said, that's just my opinion, but, you know. <coughs> so again, towards the end here. Hey, little guy, how are you? So now. Okay, go away, go away, Mila. Uh, my granddaughter, Mila. Oh, she's beautiful. Uh, I got three more. They're seven, they're nine, seven, three, and five. Five and three. She's the five-year-old. So what's life like for you nowadays? Where you're living with your daughter? Yeah. Um, well, actually, when she graduated high school in 2010, she moved in with me. So technically, they all live with me. Okay. But, I mean, we all cohabit the house. It's just easier this way. And then nowadays in the the financial situation of the world, it's easier for us all to live together than it is for, uh, for a while they were living in Philadelphia because he's from, her husband's from New Jersey. And then when the pandemic struck and everybody was kind of like stuck home, they were working from home. Mila, that's the empty bag of the oranges. Anyways, so we just kind of decided that it was easier, a lot cheaper on everybody in the long run if we all just live together. Okay. So my last question for you is, do you have any advice for people listening? First of all, if you've had your addiction for a long time, get help. Find out the root cause of your addiction. You didn't weren't born this way. You need to soul search yourself and deal with those, whether it's sexual abuse, physical abuse, mental abuse, something happened to you. Something deep down that you may not want to talk about, but you have to talk about it. You have to find somebody to share it with. You don't have to go to NA meetings. You don't have to go to AA meetings. You need to get psychological or mental health because that's the only way you're going to get clean and sober. And once you get clean and sober, find friends and people to talk to, even if they're on Facebook, even if they're on TikTok or whatever, Snapchat. Find people that are in the same situation you are that's fighting the battle of addiction. Because addiction is not only mental, it's also physically, physical, psychological. There's so much pain in it. I hope you peace. I wish you peace. You have to hope. speak up there at the very I end. Said, I wish you peace and hope that you find your answers to your addiction problems. And if not, you can always Facebook me. I accept all friends. So you're there to listen to family needs. 
Thank you. Thank you for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Oh, I appreciate you too. You have a blessed day. All right, hang tight for a moment. I just want to say thanks to everyone who's watching and listening. If you like what you heard, go below and click like and also subscribe so you'll see when new videos are uploaded. We are on Twitter, Instagram, Reddit, Facebook. On Facebook, you can go to the events tab and see a link for our nightly Zoom meetings. They're at 6.30 Eastern Standard Time. I hope you guys could join us. That's all I have for today. And until next time. Bye.